Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Rick, how are you doing, sir? Life is fine, thank you. And yourself? Magnificent. We've, we've, it's, been a, it's been a great week. It's a great week. Rolling up towards uh, Christmas before we know it, so what's not to like? So, um, Rick, thank you very much, by the way, for the, the last, last session you did with us. Hugely popular. Who knew? Who knew? You, you weren't really a, a cinephile. You never watched movies. Have, has that been rectified? Has your wife made you sit down and watch something? Well, in fact, uh, although I forget the name of the movie, uh, the one that you patterned the last interview off of, uh, I was able to find and look at, albeit uh, on the same screen I'm talking to you on, which is to say, uh, <clears throat> in a very sort of miniaturized format. And I, I, I must say, uh, I, I'm not going to say I like the movie, but it was sort of uh, amusing in theme and content. Uh, it hasn't driven me to become a cinephile at all, of course. It, it, it hasn't got your passion stirred. Okay, we'll have to try harder. And we're going to try harder today, actually, but, but more, more of that in a second. I must talk to you because you're, you're a man in Havana, as it were. What's happening on the ground in the US? There doesn't seem to be a decision yet. Uh, this will make some of your viewers hate me. I suspect that there's a decision in place. Um, <clears throat> the uh, nature of politics around the world, uh, I think, was summarized by Mencken that said an election is an advanced auction of stolen property. The consequence of, this, of that is that they're very, very hotly contested. Uh, and there are differences of opinion in this country uh, as to what the high bid should look like and who the high bid should be. But there is no contest. Both sides believe that the stakes are extremely high. And so they're fighting them very, very, very hard. Uh, American politics for perhaps 50 or 60 years were interesting in that <clears throat> there was a fundamental belief in the process. Uh, I think we've become a much more cynical culture now. Uh, and, and there are... <clears throat> wars over the outcome that suggest that the process itself is less important. Uh, while I think that's sad, I also think it's inevitable. And perhaps the consequence of this election is that uh, the center of American politics, by the way, a group of people to whom I don't belong, will begin to reassert uh, <clears throat> leadership uh, relative to both the elitist radical left uh, and the populist radical right. Uh, it would seem to me that the zealots on both sides are driving the debate uh, and leaving behind the vast bulk of Americans who I think are increasingly sick of all of the shenanigans. They, they are. In fact, I was, I was talking to Frank Holmes earlier in the week and we were talking about the rise of populism and the, the, the influence of that or, or not, I think it seems to me you seem, this is predetermined, it doesn't really matter who's in power, the end game's the same. Well, certainly with regards to what we normally talk about, which is to say precious metals, uh, <clears throat> the outcome is completely the same. We're talking about Tweedledum versus Tweedledumer, and they're interchangeable. Uh, both of them, I should, I should amend that. The broad U.S. populace and the leadership of both parties believe in quantitative easing. 
they believe in deficit spending as long as it's on themselves. They seem to have no fear of debt if they regard it as non-recourse to themselves. Uh, and they believe in artificially low interest rates. You and I discussed, <clears throat> pardon me, we discussed this phenomenon a couple interviews uh, ago. One of the features of a democracy is that in society's ongoing war between spenders and savers, the spenders are more numerous. Uh, and so, of course, they would favor a low market interest rates. And I don't see any difference between the two major parties in terms of their willingness to uh, imperil the savings of individual Americans through quantitative easing, through debt and deficits, and through artificially low interest rates. So from that viewpoint, the election is an irrelevancy. That's depressing. Thanks. We're going to liven it up because we're going to do a radio chat show sandwich with you today. And by that, I mean, I'm going to introduce you to two uh, British radio shows and, um, and ask you interspersed with questions about investing. Because that's what people are here. They're here for your wisdom, your gold dust. Okay, that's what, the, that's what they want. But I'm going to make them, I'm going to torture them slightly by making you do things perhaps you, you'll regret later on. But uh, here we go. So the first idea we're going to introduce is something called over here, it's known as Desert Island Discs. And what the, the premise of it has been going for 45, 50 years here in the UK. A celebrity, that would be you, is stranded on a desert island, place unknown. And um, to idle their, help them idle their hours away, they're allowed to take some music with them, some books, and, and a... Um, a luxury item. Okay, so we're going to make you just think about this. And we're going to make you pick five pieces of music. But I'd like you to sort of share with us, you know, why you've chosen that piece of music and, you know, how it's influenced you or what it, what it means to you, whether it be at that time of your life um, or, or, even, or even today. So um, are you up for that? I am. Fantastic. Good man. Well, we're going to, we're, in which case, we, we're, we're going to start off. Everyone, a lot of people know a lot about you, and we learned, learned a little bit more about you last time out um, with regards to your, your film-watching habits or, or lack thereof. But music is a big part of everyone's life. So what's your first piece of music, Rick? My first piece of music uh, would probably be Tchaikovsky's 1812 uh, Overture. And I forget, to be honest with you, uh, the name of the Russian orchestra that was my favorite, but I, that would be my first. Why is, why is that? When, when did you first come across it? It's quite dramatic uh, piece. I came, across, I came across it very early in life, and the truth is that I'm not particularly sophisticated in my music appreciation, and, and so the only thing I can say is that I like the way it sounds, still. Uh, I, I think music should sound nice. Uh, it's also stirring. It isn't too sophisticated. So it, it appeals to me, given my lack of sophistication in music. Yeah, it, it, the, the, it's quite a, quite a powerful piece. Very, very well-known piece. Um, I, 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 was, I was surprised when you chose that, actually. I, I wasn't quite sure what you... But that, that was the first thing I read. And I was like, 
okay, okay. It's, it's got some, got, a, got a, like I say, a lot of power to it. So what we're going to do, just, um, it's just, it, I think I'm trying to discombobulate you. Is, is, is the, is the truth here? Right. Okay. So I'm going to throw at you questions and, and, and disperse with these musical selections of yours. Uh, and I hope we can do that. And, and the questions sent in by, um, people from the, um, Crux Investor Club, uh, members, subscribers. Okay. Um, and the first question is, do I need a mentor to succeed in investing? Need is too strong a phrase, uh, but I think it's extremely, extremely useful. I personally benefited from a relatively large number of very high quality mentors. Uh, so <clears throat> from my own experience, the idea of a mentor uh, is too stingy. Uh, I would suggest if it's possible to acquire more than one mentor because there are many facets to investing and, and your needs change through your career. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's a kind of an old, do you think people do use or find or not, not need, but um, have mentors anymore? It used to be, you know, part of the growing up in terms of learning a life skill. It was something that people would, you know, strive to find someone who'd take them through their lives I can uh, tell you that many people uh, seek me out as a mentor, <clears throat> and I still, at age 67, turn <clears throat> pardon me, to people who I believe have uh, skill sets and knowledge that I don't have. Uh, so at age 67, I'm still utilizing mentors. And my suspicion is, frankly, with technology, like the technology that we're using today and the interconnectedness that people have around the world, that there is more rather than less access to mentors. The way that we access it probably changes, um, but that's what's supposed to happen with technology. Uh, the processes that you employ to live your life are supposed to keep pace with the changes in technology. It's, it's kind of interesting. People, you know, again, we have a lot of questions sent in. I've tried to kind of group them together, but, you know, people were saying, well, talking about the best books that they've ever read and, you know, that these have replaced mentors. But I think you're obviously right. Technology is allowing us to watch video live streaming of, of sessions with groups of people, which you've done many, many times, and interviews from people from all around the world on a variety of topics. Um, so I guess there is, it's just a new way of learning. As you say, you do need to change and adapt with over time. So it's good. It's good. Um, shall we? Shall we check? We're going to uh, check in with your next bit of music. So, who, who have you chosen, and, and again, why? Uh, as I recall, uh, the next choice was an Aretha Franklin album called "Songs of Faith." Is that correct? That that is. <coughs> I, I chose. <clears throat> I chose that again because I <clears throat> I like the way it sounds. Uh, she has a voice that I would describe almost as, a, as an instrument, a, a transcendent voice. This recording took place when she was 14 or 15 years old. 1956. Uh, at, her, at her father's church uh, in Detroit. I found it amazing that she had at that age uh, the command of singing skills that she had. Uh, the emotion behind the music uh, and behind the crowd was amazing to me. And much of my life, I'm, I try to be as unemotional as is possible. <clears throat> and one of the things that uh, music is for me is a release. 
I, I should note that I'm not Christian, uh, but I have a deep love of African-American gospel music from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I would suggest that to Aretha Franklin, in terms of the transition from gospel to popular music, is my favorite female musician. And this is sort of her beginning piece. Yeah, so it's a real anthem, and she's, she's responsible for quite a few anthems, um, for, for sure, a very powerful woman. I was listening to a, a, a radio show with her in it the other day, and she's, she's turned into a, a fabulous darling with um, No Holes Barred. No holds barred. And she, she's talking about she lived her life um, in a very male-dominated environment, and including in the music industry and, you know, you know, how tough it was. But, and, but she felt that men were threatened by her intelligence, not her voice. She felt that she was able to compete. I mean, did, did you, I mean, have you ever, I mean, beyond this album, songs of, the Songs of Faith album, did you follow her through the rest of her career? Uh, not uh, outside of music, particularly. Uh, she has been uh, a sort of favorite of mine in terms of music. <clears throat> I guess the subtext of that is, if you will, uh, African-American philosophy. And I've been a studier of that, too, because I'm interested in subcultures. But tell me about that. What, what, what does that mean in, in America? We, we've seen, obviously, through the U.S. elections and the lead up to this very, very polarized nation and Black Lives Matter, etc. But what, what, what was it in the 40s and the 50s or the 60s and beyond? Well, probably, uh, probably later for me. Uh, I remember very well when I was in my teens, <clears throat> having mixed emotions about the war in Vietnam, uh, taking in information from all sources, and then one of the greatest political and social philosophers in American history came on TV. His name was Muhammad Ali. Uh, as a prize fighter, he had a better sense of Vietnam than 500 congressmen did. He looked right at the camera, said, I ain't got no quarrel with no Viet Cong. None of them never called me. And uh, yeah, struck me plain as, struck me plain as day. And then from there, uh, I started reading a lot of Malcolm X, who professed at that time uh, to be anti-white. You could tell from his reading that he was anything but anti-white. He was merely pro-black. Uh, and the overriding theme of Malcolm X's work is that you can't allow yourself to be judged by somebody who has an interest in degrading you. One of the meanings of black gospel, I think, was for a time forming a community with God because a community inside their own country was unavailable. Um, finding strength in oneself, finding strength in a subculture that gave life meaning, but also defended you uh, against a circumstance that was overtly, in many cases, hostile. Uh, appeals to me. Uh, there are time, you know, there from time to time, uh, as a libertarian and anarcho-capitalist and a gold bug, <laughs> I empathize as opposed to sympathize uh, with the sense of an oppressed minority. <laughs> yeah, and then the, just coming back to the, the subculture thing, but do you think that moment made you realize that, you know, we're all equal, we're, we're all 
intelligent. We're all capable of um, you know, intelligent thought, but you recognize the oppression of this group of people? Oh, I think I recognized that uh, before. I <clears throat> remember being very young uh, and noticing fairly overt hostility, even among young people between Caucasian, African-American and Latino communities. Uh, my first memory of that would have been at, at seven or eight years old. <clears throat> and even at that age, while I understood that there were difficulties, uh, you know, uh, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit, but it didn't seem to me uh, to be right. It's, it's very, so very formative years for you, I think, is, 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 is what you're saying. So here's one question sent in. Are you discombobulated yet? We're, we're, we're trying really hard. So far, so good. <laughs> I suspect it will be the whole way through. Um, so what happens if we have never-ending crises and epidemics to the price of gold and silver, because if the new norm is never-ending epidemics and crises, surely it all levels out. That's a very interesting question. Let's unpack it. First of all, uh, we live in the finest time that there has ever been to live on Earth. And it's going to get better. Defined how? In other words, it's pretty good. It's pretty good now, uh, and it's going to improve. We live in the most peaceful epoch in the history of mankind. We have better connection between us through technology than we have ever had in the history of mankind. The bottom of the demographic pyramid is the richest and the best provided for that they have ever been in the history of mankind. I'm not suggesting that more doesn't need to be done. Um, so let's get that out of the way. The ascent of man is the longest running bull market that any of us have or will experience, and it will continue. There will be periodic resets and reckonings. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Uh, my own belief is that while the gold price moves as a consequence of people's fear, the most important fear doesn't have to do uh, with uh, epidemics or even low-scale conflicts. It has to do with the debasement of purchasing power of people's savings, denominated in conventional savings instruments, particularly savings instruments that are issued by sovereigns, which traditionally have been regarded as safe haven instruments. So I would argue with your questioner that the gold price is determined by the policy response to the perception of crises or the existence of crises. Uh, as a young investor and as a young man, uh, we were trained to believe that the uh, eventual uh, consequence of a six or seven or eight or 10 year economic expansion was a recession. Uh, it, the sort of, you know, Schumpeter described it, the animal spirits uh, would go to an illogical extreme and that the consequence of a bull market would be a bear market. The voters and the citizens and certainly the politicians seem to believe now that recessions should be and are illegal. And my suspicion is that the markets will always be larger than the political class, no matter what. The political class can forestall a reckoning, but they can't eliminate uh, a reckoning. And my suspicion, too, I'm not an economist, I'm a credit analyst, but my suspicion, too, is that to the extent that you forestall 
uh, a reaction to policy, particularly with easy money. You don't create demand, actually. You forward shift it. Uh, you steal demand from 2021, 2022, and you use it in 2020, which means that you have to replace it again in 2021 and 2022. And my suspicion is that we face one or more resets, which might be sharp and dramatic, and therefore short-lived, or another one, which is longer, that will involve a malaise. I don't see any way out of that. I think, I think in business, if you did that, that would be called cooking the books, I suspect. <laughs> well, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt about that. If you went out and printed cruxes and you decided to pay your bills with cruxes that you would either be charged with counterfeiting or you would be charged with fraud and you would be put in prison. Uh, if you did it as an MP, you would be hugely popular and you'd be elected. It's an odd set of circumstances, the dichotomy between those two responses. It's terrifying to think that there's something worse than a virus that might kill us all created in this instance, by our own inability to manage our financial system. But I suspect there's a lot in what you say. So um, we, be we better move on to, again, I'm trying to keep this jolly, Rick. You, you, you're determined. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> you're I, thought determined. The I thought the ascent of I thought the ascent of man was pretty good. Uh, that, that's a great I, one. I think I told, there's a book. I, I, told you in an, I told you in an earlier interview, I think, that I'm always amazed that our individual creativity and hard work and tenacity has thus far uh, managed to overcome our collective stupidity. And I think that's what the ascent of man is all about. It's all about private efforts, overwhelming communal idiocy. Uh, I think that's extremely positive. It, it, it's even more idiotic when we keep doing the same things over and over since the since the time of the Greeks, right? But, but again, let's, we better not get into a history lesson. I think it might turn some people off. But I have one more question for you. Get another one sent in, um, which is more about methodology and helping people trying to invest. So you have said in the past it's too early for copper, right? And I don't know if you're reevaluating because I know we're 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 keen on what copper's going to see what copper's going to do next year. But what is the methodology by which you determine when is the right time for copper? There's two different answers to that question, sadly. Uh, copper is below the incentive price to bring in new supply, and we're building a deficit. And in normal circumstances, I love materials that are necessary for our lifestyle where they're priced below the production cost. I love industries in liquidation, and copper's in liquidation. So in the five-year time frame, I'm a huge copper bull. In the near term, my nervousness is that uh, the economy is vulnerable, uh, vulnerable to the fact that we had a 10-year expansion, vulnerable to the fact that we have financed that expansion by stealing demand from uh, future periods, and vulnerable too, because I don't think we've priced in the effect of the COVID-19 virus to the economy around the world. Mercifully for all concerned, including myself, I've been very wrong about the copper price for the last nine months. Mm -hmm. And given that I, my greed overwhelmed my fear and I own some copper stocks, I would be delighted to continue to be wrong into the foreseeable future. Uh, what you see in the commodity business is that if the price of something is low enough to reduce uh, 
or eliminate sustaining capital investments and eliminate new project investments, that you end up with supply shortages that cause price spikes. So my suspicion is that either the, the commodity price, by commodity I mean copper, the copper price gradually rises um, through 2021, 22, 23, or it declines and there's a sharp drop off in sustaining capital uh, expenditures, in which case four or five years out, you see a dramatic price rise. Uh, I don't know which it will be. But all of the above are, are good for you. But do you think this is an artificial, um, the price being artificially increased because of China's determination to drive this infrastructure rebuild through the COVID um, epidemic? I do. Uh, I, I'm not uh, an expert on China. Uh, I, I note that their banking system is fairly opaque and politically driven. And I think that their political leadership has probably done as good a job as one could expect. A very small group of people attempting to lead a very large group of people could do. Um, feedback systems that involve 10,000 people ruling 1.4 billion people are, by their nature, fragile. Fragile, first of all, because you don't admit the wisdom of the crowd. That is, there's no feedback mechanism to measure what responses give the most utility 1.4 billion people, but also fragile because ultimately sometimes the 1.4 billion people resent being led to that degree by 10,000 people. I hope it works. Then you're going to make your mind up. If it's not working in the U.S. with our <laughs> political dem democratic system, who's to say it's not, it, you know, the opposite won't work? Well, certainly you've exposed my bias. Uh, I hope with regards to that, I'm wrong. Okay. Okay. Um, I, mean, I, I just think copper, copper is an interesting space. It's kind of like uranium has been in, which I know, you know, you, you, you've got views on uranium, which, which we're going to come to um, shortly. But it's, it's time for a song. This time, okay. we've got the Mississippi, Mississippi Mass Choir. You've, you've um, well, tell us, what's, the, what's this song and who's, who's singing and uh, again, why? Uh, really anything by Mosey Burke. Uh, who is the sort of 75-year-old lead singer for the Mississippi Mass Choir. The Mississippi Mass Choir itself is probably uh, the largest and the most fervent um, provider of traditional gospel singing in the United States. <clears throat> and Mosey Burke, uh, well, I, I guess she appeals to me because at age 67, I hope I have half the energy and passion that she has uh, 10 years hence. Um, uh, again, I'm embarrassed to say I like it because of the way it sounds. Uh, I like it because the emotion, there's a wonderful free product on YouTube uh, called Gospel Legends by Malacom that is not only Mississippi Mass Choir, but all of the traditional uh, African American gospel greats that I highly recommend to people. Uh, no, it's, it's fantastic. I, again, I had a listen. It's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's power. It's again powerful piece. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's got this real beauty to it because because it draws everyone in and it's been going a watch. What she I think what she called herself the seventy two year old beginner. I think she labelled herself. <laughs> uh, well, uh, that humility is uh, humbling too. I suspect that uh, many people who have gained the mastery that she has understand how much there is left to learn. Do you, do you think humility is a big part of, uh, of, of character 
or leadership or is it a way to get people to listen to you? Because you, 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 you bring down the, the walls that way, don't you? You make it accessible. In my own view, uh, humility, humility is a necessary defense mechanism. You protect yourself against yourself, uh, who is, you know, you yourself are always your greatest risk. Uh, and the development of humility means that you acquire the need to second guess yourself the need to understand that even in those circumstances where you outcompete others, you still present a risk to yourself. And so, you know, I suspect with regards to uh, uh, Moisey or Mama Birch, as she, uh, uh, as she is called, uh, that she, as she becomes more familiar with her craft, uh, understands how many aspects of it she still isn't familiar with. Or uh, when she listens to one of her masterful recordings, she is still concerned with making it better. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm, I'm coming back to our mentor question. I'm just thinking about the mentor question. Would you see yourself as more approachable or are you more attracted to people with humility or do you strive to be like the most successful person you know? I mean, how do you pitch yourself, not pitch yourself, how do you identify yourself against other leaders in the investing space or the mining space? Have you tried to be yourself or have you aspired to be someone else? Uh, no, I definitely try to be myself. That's challenging enough, to be honest. Um, I have a fairly narrow range of expertise uh, in order really to be useful to someone, uh, the mentorship role that I'm best at really involves natural resource investing uh, or the broader concept of financial risk. I enjoy uh, mentoring young people uh, around uh, personal development and personal freedom. Uh, I enjoy mentoring for a student group called Students for Liberty. And I particularly enjoy mentoring uh, South Asian and African frontier market students. Uh, in that case, I think because of the uh, lessons I learned as an example from Ludwig von Mises or Malcolm X, uh, being appropriate to people uh, in terms of how to defend themselves from their own culture. But I think that people outgrow those lessons for me very quickly because I can introduce them to better mentors. With regards to mentoring people in natural resource finance, speculation, things like that, probably my lessons are more enduring. But you, would you agree with the phrase, and sorry if there are cliche in here, money corrupts? And by that I mean, I, I've come from the banking sector and I've seen people grow over time, growing wealth over time. And they change. They become different people. They think they they think they need to, or the money makes them behave a certain way. And and the, and the the person you kind of fell in love with or, or, or liked uh, disappears. And it's only in times of hardship again that they work that out for themselves. I mean, have you seen a lot of that? You've you've been through a couple of cycles. I have, uh, and in fact, I think that banking, probably by its nature. Uh, attracts uh, attracts people who are more interested in making money for themselves than for delivering utility. 
interestingly, when I look at the self-made billionaires whom I've met, I'm not trying to say that they don't buy some toys, but the process ends up much being much more important to them uh, than their personal access to products. Uh, I, I look at, uh, you know, say uh, Ross Beatty, uh, who's made an awful lot of money. He's given away an awful lot of money. And while his lifestyle is certainly comfortable, uh, it isn't consistent with the image that somebody has of a financial tycoon. I found that most of the self-made people who have made a lot of money are much less interested in the trappings of success uh, and much more interested in the process of success, much more interested in making money by delivering utility to others. It's the sort of entrepreneurial spark that gives them uh, joy. I I'm not trying to say that there aren't a large number of people whom I would regard as corrupt uh, in financial services uh, and in extractive industries. And I've run into lots of them. But mercifully, I've run into so many people in the course of my life that I can merely ignore the ones who have proven themselves to be corrupt to me, or uh, I, I can use them in the furtherance of my own goals without actually offering up too much utility to them. But can you spot it coming? How long would it take you to decipher? I assume it. I mean, to be honest with you, that sounds very cynical, uh, but I assume it. Um, one of the things I always do in an initial interview with a company promoter, as an example, is I ask him two or three questions where I already know the answer. <clears throat> and I know uh, a range of untrue answers, which they would regard uh, as being in their self-interest. So I give them the opportunity to lie, uh, and I give them the uh, appearance of an incentive to lie. And if they lie to me, uh, they go in my no-go box. Uh, and many, many, many more fail the test than pass the test. Many more. Yeah, I think I think that is a reflection of, of society, I'm afraid. Well, look, Moisey Burke, great, great, uh, great, well, the Mississippi um, mass choir, beautiful, thoroughly recommend it. We've got to get on to some other questions. Um you have famously have this stock ranking system. You offer it at the end of each of our interviews, and we have lots of people writing in trying to understand it. And I don't, I'm not going to sit here and talk about your your ranking or reasons behind it, but essentially it's a lead generation tool for you. It, at, at its simplest level, there's an email. You may communicate with this person there. But what else, what other information are you gleaning from this? Because again, you've been doing it a while. Do you see patterns of behavior or thinking? Does it give you advanced warning? What, you, what else are you getting from it other than an email? Well, to be honest with you, as I age, I'm more and more interested in mentoring and education. And there's no way that you can educate people as well as you can talking about their own portfolio because they have an immediate interest in it. I could talk about uh, Malcolm X Speaks or Von Mises Human Action for two hours, and I'd be lucky to carry 5% of the audience past 30 minutes. But if you engage somebody with regards to their own fortune, <laughs> uh, you have their interest. And uh, I have looked now at 19,000 portfolios, and I have looked at the sort of common successes and common failures. Uh, I've looked at the concentration of issues. And if you look at the concentration of both questions and answers, 
uh, and stock selection that occurs uh, within a time frame, you understand as an example, uh, the value of narrative rather than reality. You understand the popularity, the rising and falling popularity of various pundits. Uh, you understand the nature of electronic social media stock promotion, particularly coming out of the Vancouver fraud machine. Uh, you can see these waves of ownership of worthless narratives with dreams printed on pieces of paper. Uh, of particular interest to me, although I don't have time to answer all the questions, has been the questions that people have asked, uh, which has been literally invaluable to me in terms of my ability to communicate in mediums like this to an audience, listening to what the audience wants to hear, as opposed to thinking about what you think is important for them to hear is critical. But that's the bit that interests me. So I know it informs you, and you have said in the past, you're very good at these, um, th this kind of format, doing interviews, whether it be live or now online, et cetera. But do you put that, do you credit that down to your own in, into intuition? Do you put that down to this, you know, you're, you've got a broad understanding of the questions that people think, what people are thinking, how they're thinking. Because, you know, your, your target audience isn't always retail. You've, you've got to cater for a number of different audiences. But how, how much value, how much store do you put by this and how much do you say, well, actually, I, I'm, I'm garnering a lot of information by the dint of I'm doing business on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm learning what, what works and what doesn't for me as an organization. And this is just, you know, a sideshow. The uh, assimilation of information uh, is something I'm interested in and something I've become good at over 45 years. <clears throat> As an investor, the buck doesn't stop from you. You have to assimilate information from geologists and engineers, lawyers, accountants, and you have to develop a sense within yourself of how to use that information, uh, what the strengths and what the weaknesses and what the biases are for people that you get information from. So I've spent 45 years learning how to assimilate information. What's useful is to have this 19,000 person database uh, that you can play with. Uh, it's interesting to notice as an example, the commonality of questions between people who are most interested by their own admission in silver, uh, or those people whose primary speculative interest is uranium. Uh, it's interesting to note the difference in questions between people who own what I call the best of the best, the five or six best gold mining stocks in the world, relative to people who are inclined to want to own the penny dreadfuls. Uh, it's useful in many regards because in the various interviews that I'm a guest on, like this one, there are various constituencies. And if you notice uh, a commonality in the way people think uh, and the way way people gather and organize information from various sub-constituencies, you can speak to them better than you otherwise could. What questions should they be asking? Well, the first questions that they should ask is of themselves, not of me. Uh, what is it that they're trying to accomplish? Uh, most people answer the question by saying, to make money. And that's the wrong initial answer. Uh, 
How much risk are you willing to take to make that money? How much work are you willing to put in to take that money? What is the desired time frame with regards to making that money? And is that time frame realistic? In other words, the first rounds of questions should not be directed to Rick, but rather should be directed inward. Uh, secondly, I've noticed that people want a one-size-fits-all answer, uh, not understanding that uh, in a market, uh, a broad range of people, there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer too. So in very simplistic form, uh, determining whether someone is an investor, uh, which is to say that they want to invest money with a reasonable probability of return uh, over a period of time, or are they a speculator? Are they willing to take much more risk uh, in the face of a possibility rather than a probability of an outsized rather than a normalized return. Uh, what most people want, of course, is outside return, uh, outsized return with minimal risk, which only occurs in extraordinary bear markets where most people don't have the guts to actualize the strategy. Uh, but I think those are important questions. At once, you know, I think many people would suggest that they want to be investors and speculators too, which is fine. Then you need to determine within very broad parameters uh, how much of your portfolio you'd like to invest with and what percentage of your portfolio you can afford to speculate with. Uh, and then what forms of risk uh, are you not merely financially, but also psychologically comfortable with? I have some very, very wealthy clients, extraordinarily wealthy clients of very long duration who could afford a lot of risk. They could lose 100% of the value of their account with me, and it wouldn't change their decision as to what to have for breakfast at all. But the truth is that the uh, <clears throat> psychological aspects uh, of taking speculative loss are so distressing for them that although they could afford 100% wipeout, I won't let them speculate. Uh, I believe that the essence of wealth is enhancing your sense of well-being. And these extremely wealthy people experience so much psychological disutility from speculating, and they make my life so crazy when they do speculate, that I won't let them speculate. It's, in, it's important that they know themselves or failing that, that I come to know them well enough that I can guard them against themselves. So when you're reading through these questions, I mean, do you get the, I guess this is a hard one, not enough data points, maybe, are they looking for affirmation of decisions they've already made? Or are they willing to have a change of mind based on what you say? How powerful are you, Rick? That's, I guess that's what we're asking. <laughs> uh, the, the truth is, I mean, what you say is true. Uh, both selling and teaching are primarily affirmative. And if you can't, uh, as a teacher uh, or as an investment manager, uh, achieve an understanding that's affirmative uh, to the student uh, or the client, you will fail in communication. You won't fail in every circumstance, but the percentage of people who are truly broad-minded relative to the people who respond to affirmation is so small as to be almost statistically insignificant. There is, on the other hand, the guru factor. Uh, people would like other people to do their work for them and to be responsible for their successes and failures. And in that sense, there is a fairly substantial uh, subpopulation within that 19,000 
that would like to obviate responsibility for their financial future and hand it to me, preferably for no fee, of course. Um, and that's very dangerous. Uh, although uh, I trust myself and I've earned a trust, the idea that I could uh, operate someone's financial future without understanding their needs, wants, <laughs> risk tolerance, uh, work ethic uh, is a non-starter. We're in an interesting area, the, the psychology of investing, especially at retail level. You, you talk about infinitesimal, a number of people capable of um, of understanding. Because um, again, the reason I'm intrigued by this because when we, we we see quite often in the madness of chat rooms and forums and social media that people have very very strong views on a topic, technical, financial. Not necessarily trained or experienced in it, but they have very, very strong views. And woe betide anyone who doesn't agree with them. You know that 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 is the nature of of, of investing. Uh, people, I guess, feel very protective of the decision that they've made, but very, very few prepared to admit they're wrong or change the decision making. And we see that in the the uh, incoming response, where very as a percentage of people who say we have I, we've changed our opinion based on information we've. Learned on your sh- on on your show, uh, etc. So I'm just wondering, you know, how do you how do you deal with that? Because you, you're trying to onboard people; they have set views, they've set um, perception of the marketplace, um, but they must have must have come to the realization that they're not equipped as well as you are to make better investment decisions. Helping people make better investment decisions is a process. Uh, it doesn't occur in one communication or two communications. The best I can hope for is to give uh, the listener enough value up front that he or she is incented uh, to pay attention to the process. Uh, very often unsuccessful, which is fine. The One of the reasons that I do this is I come to be in touch with a very large number of people and the probability that there are people there that I can communicate with and help is expanded given the fact that I touch a large number of people and I touch them for an extended period of time. There are people within that data set and in those discussion rooms, as you discuss, that have no business doing business with me. Uh, The fact that they come to recognize it before we trouble each other uh, is a good thing too. Uh, one of the things I've learned with regards to affirmation is if you touch any part of somebody's belief the wrong way, uh, they won't listen to the whole of your message. Uh, I've been saying for sort of three and a half or four months now that I believe that we're uh, probably in the early middle stages of a real secular bull market in precious metals with higher precious metals prices, but that the small end of the market got too hot too fast and got overpriced. So the headline, because of course, interviewers need a headline, is uh, Rick Rule says junior stocks are overpriced. I'll, uh, I'll use that. If they, That's a good idea. If they, <laughs> if they listen to the whole, if the people listen to the whole interview and listen to that remark in the context of the remarks, they would understand the message. But I, I see absolutely vituperative responses, including to me personally, 
about the fact that, uh, you know, I'm trying to talk the market down <laughs> for my own benefit, that I'm a tool of the Rothschilds uh, <laughs> uh, or merely. <laughs> That's a good one. Or, 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 or merely that I'm inconsistent in terms of my message. Uh, I'm not. Six months ago, the market, the junior end of the market was cheap. Uh, two months ago, the junior end of the market was expensive. There's no dichotomy in message. Uh, it isn't me changing my mind. It's the market changing its valuation. And so there's always going to be three or 4% of the population that's so angry, so greedy, so dumb. Uh, so whatever it is uh, that they will violently uh, oppose your methodology. And, and that's okay. Uh, I, I just ignore them. I'm, I'm delighted that they self-identify. And I'm delighted, too, that they find me objectionable at the beginning of the discussion so that we don't have to carry it on. Saves a lot of time. It does. I, I, I quickly learned that one. Um, gold's gun and gun and was it gold's guns and gold? Just tone it down. Because, yeah, we, 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 yeah we've, seen, we've seen that. It's a very enthusiastic audience. Of, of gold bugs, um, some more rational than, than others. And I think, you know, we've, we've had a few people on the show who predicted a sort of, you know, large uh, reset, which I don't know, there has been a little bit of reset from 2000 bucks, but that, that was sacrilege. And woe, woe betide us for, you know, we, we, we got in trouble for bringing people on the show who said that gold would reset. So I think the enthusiasm is, is quite extraordinary. Um, just a qu another quick one here, which is, what's your advice for people with a portfolio of less than 10,000 bucks? What should they be doing? Less than $10,000 doesn't justify very much work. Uh, if they have a job where they're adding value, that job is going to be more important to their financial future than their portfolio. Uh, are you talking about a $10,000 total portfolio or yeah. a $10,000 precious metals portfolio? Total portfolio? The question sent in was, was total portfolio. These are young people starting out. We were keep all young ones. Do you remember? Keep, keep at least 20% of it okay. in cash. Uh, or more importantly, keep at least two months living expenses in cash. Um, okay. Be defensive before you're offensive. Uh, if that young person were American, uh, I would probably put 20 or 25% in quote, America, uh, which is to say, in an S&P 500 index fund, knowing that that $2,000 could fall by half in the next five years, but knowing too in 10 years or 20 years, uh, for a young person, that the initial capital erosion wouldn't matter. Uh, I would have, uh, as a young person, uh, at least 10% personally in precious metals. Uh, precious metals traditionally have leverage to the circumstance that makes other savings and investment uh, instruments worthless. And so I would own precious metals more as a defensive mechanism. Uh, and that could be done either with physical precious metals, or I would suggest, because you can buy very small amounts of stock these days, uh, buying the five or six finest gold mining companies in the world, which is to say, buying the uh, beta in the precious metals equities markets, and maybe even underperforming the index, but owning the finest companies in the world, which will give you that beta de-risked from company failure to a large degree. That's, 
Yeah, solid advice. There's, there's, we've got quite a few young people. We've got 60,000 subscribers here of all ages, sizes, experience, you know, um, so I'm sitting back and watching, just trying trying to learn and you know, they're sharing ideas with each other, which is, which is all fantastic. But for the young ones, it's, it's always difficult to work work out who do I listen to, you know, who's right, what's right for me. So it's, it's a great song. But it's time for our next song. And this this song, it's another big moment in African history in, in America because um, we're, 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 we're this was uh, an artist who performed uh, a concert after the death of uh, Martin Luther King. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the uh, Live at Boston conference by James Brown. Um, Fabulous concert. James Brown was somebody that I was extremely uh, fond of in my teens. Uh, again, uh, I like the energy. Uh, being a lousy dancer, uh, I was impressed by his dancing. But I was also impressed by his evident leadership skills. The James Brown band performed extraordinarily complex music, syncopated music, polyrhythmic music, and they never missed a beat, they never missed a note. When I had the ability as a young man to go to a James Brown concert, and by the way, uh, that was an adventurous set of circumstances. Although I was part of the, the majority population in the world at large, I was part of a very distinct and visible minority at these, at these concerts. Because um, we're talking about 1968 here, you know, th this was- Correct, correct. Uh, a period of time where when I grew up, there was very overt racial hostility. On both, um, on both, both sides. Absolutely. Right. Uh, you know, absolutely. But, uh, For different reasons, uh, but it was there. Aside biographical note, I was a boxer at that point in time, and I boxed in a very large gym, probably 300 fighters between pro and amateur. And if my memory serves me well, 10 were Caucasian. Uh, so I wasn't unused to that circumstance. But back to James Brown, uh, the leadership skills, uh, given the complexity of the, of the music, was astonishing. This particular concert, uh, first of all, was vintage James Brown, the showmanship, the incredible machine that was his band, the connection between James Brown and the audience. Two things stood out. One, he was overtly trying to keep Boston cool in a circumstance where part of Boston, at least, wanted to explode. The second was towards the end of the conference, members of the audience got excited enough that they stormed the, st the stage. Uh, the Boston Police Department reacted as they're trained to react, which is to say to protect the entertainers, to quell the situation, and, and used immediately uh, pretty violent methods. And James Brown told the police department, these are my people, I'm fine, back off, let me handle this, which took real guts. I mean, if you're looking out at 12,000 people and those 12,000 people are rushing you, to stand there and say, this is okay, I get this. And then to say to one of the young men on stage as a way of communicating to everybody, uh, you wanna dance? Are you enjoying the show? Would you do me a favor and sit down so everybody else can enjoy the show too? Cooling that thing out like that. But you know, if you aspire to be a leader in any aspect of life, uh, having the ability to master a situation which is probably uh, unmasterable by most, by most people. 
and then using the circumstance to teach the lesson that he was trying to teach at the time. There you go. It's, yeah, very, very, again, a very sort of powerful scenario here. I mean, it was a tinderbox at that time. It, but like today, America today, certainly what we see in the news outside of America, there have been moments where that's happening again. But there's, there's no, do you think there's a natural, I don't mean political leader, do you th- but do you think there are people emerging who are able to just help the, you, America get through this moment that we're going through? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, they aren't as dramatic, but they're learning the affirmative uh, messages already. Uh, you know, because I don't have expertise uh, in the realms that James Brown operated in, uh, I require the drama of that circumstance hmm. uh, to familiarize me with his ability to turn that crisis into an opportunity to teach. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with the more subtle approaches that might have been used. Uh, in terms of race relations at that point in time, other than reading some books. Uh, But the fact that that incident was so dramatic uh, has always been what stuck in my mind. That, and of course, the physical courage that he exhibited. That's right. And and so in your business then, do it's because that's a, there was a kind of symbiosis between him and the band. It, there, there was there's they they were joined. There was an there's like I said they knew when to come in. They reacted his body, his movement, his his words. Right. In the same way, I think um, Sinatra had as well with it with his band, but um, d- d- different different time. Um, do you see that in business ever? You know, do, have you ever? Yeah, sadly, I completely failed. that much in control. Yeah, I have seen people who had the leadership skills to do that within an organization. I've certainly seen that. I am not one of those uh, in terms of building uh, organizations that are that completely focused. uh, Perhaps my individualistic libertarian sense uh, means that I favor organizations which are sort of spontaneously self-led, which James Brown would not have accommodated. If I was looking for a a musician in my own image, I probably would have gone to John Coltrane or Thelonious Monk. (laughs) (laughs) Thelonious Monk, I I, I can appreciate that. We've got to save that for another day. I like his stuff. I like his stuff. A lot of his stuff. We better go on to the next set of questions here because we're going to be, we're going to run out of time otherwise. So some big events happened in the world this week. We're going to move slightly to the macro here. These again um, questions sent in. Okay, so um, Bitcoin and its store of wealth in the context of the Chinese government closing down the IPO of Ant Finance and also um, looking at central bank digital currencies being you know looked at by. China by um, Europe. Do you think the US is going to follow suit? And what's that going to mean for gold? There's a big question. I don't know. Uh, that's a small answer. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I believe that the nature of governments, the nature of collectives, is to be increasingly restrictive. Uh, and I suspect that governments around the world, be they nominally democratic or nominally totalitarian, uh, will continue 
to try to serve powerful organized constituencies to the detriment of individuals. Thus far through human history, the individuals have always been more adept uh, and have always prevailed over uh, collective evil and collective stupidity. And I hope that that continues today. Uh, is Bitcoin the answer? No, uh, it might be part of somebody's individual answer. Certainly, Bitcoin has proven its utility for certain Chinese people to evade the currency controls that are otherwise only uh, that you can otherwise only get around with political connections in China. And such has been true too for people in Zimbabwe, South Africa, Venezuela. Uh, so given the ability to use the anonymity and the frictionless nature of Bitcoin uh, to move wealth out of places where it is otherwise restricted is certainly a utility. The difficulty that I see with Bitcoin is what the traders like so much about it, which is to say it's volatility. Uh, ideally, money is not volatile. Uh, ideally, uh, money isn't traded so much as used for transactions. The very low friction with regards to Bitcoin uh, makes it suited to uh, transactions. But the volatility means that as long as most of your life is dominated in the currency, uh, promulgated by the country that you live in, uh, with Bitcoin being so volatile, if you use a piece of Bitcoin to buy a couple of cups of coffee, you really have no idea what you paid, nor does Starbucks know what they received. The second thing about Bitcoin that's a bit troubling for an old gold bug like myself is it's a medium of exchange that other than the size of the network isn't a store of value for reasons that we've talked about before, utility, malleability, durability, uh, consistency, uh, gold is ideal as a medium of exchange and simultaneously a store of value. It's not a promise to pay, but rather payment itself. The thing that has interested me about uh, blockchain and distributed ledger technologies is the ability to denominate exchanges in other items using the, fr the uh, frictionless nature uh, and the built-in trust inherent in the system so as an example, fractionalizing and tokenizing gold, utilizing the blockchain uh, is something that's of interest enough to Sprott that we've invested several million dollars in several technologies to be part of that. Is there a vault uh, chain? Bitcoin. I'm sorry? Your, uh, vault chain. Is that Correct. Right. Uh, among others. Amongst, among others. Amongst many. We, okay. We, we weren't smart enough to understand which technology would emerge. I don't think anybody is. And so we placed bets uh, on several where we believed that uh, if the technology proved to be efficacious, that the Sprott brand could be uh, useful in terms of the ultimate product. But do you think that it needs to be um, gold-backed? Is that, is that the only circumstances they're working? They, they don't need to be gold-backed uh, in order to work necessarily. They need to be gold-backed in order for me to have faith in them. And in order for me to be able to bring more than money to the investment, uh, a, a distributed ledger technology that went around some other store of value that I had no reputation or understanding of would be of interest to me, but of no use to me. Right. Okay. I mean, I, th I think that's a, that's a big one. We, again, I'd like gold bugs, um, Bit Bitcoin aficionados, uh, very, very passionate very, very dismissive mm -hmm. if you're not passionate. But um, <laughs> that one's been playing out for a long time. And I suspect it's got a long way to run until governments work out how to control it. Um, 
What, one, one question here. Um, it's a question about cycles, the predictability of cycles. Do you think it was more predictable in the past to be able to predict commodity cycles than it is now? No. Uh, maybe that's because I've, in terms of time, never been accurate predicting cycles. I've always been early. Uh, and I, I don't see myself as being any better or any worse <laughs> than I uh, ever was. Uh, I think if you define uh, cycles as a function of markets, Buffett famously said that there are so many factors that go into a market that understanding a market, at least with regards to timing, is trying to know the unknowable. Uh, and, the, and as a consequence of that is useful only for amusement. Longer term, uh, in commodities, uh, cycles are broadly predictable uh, within pretty generous time frames, which is to say, if you have a commodity uh, where the supply of that commodity is integral to the life that you want to live and that society wants to live, in other words, if there's ongoing demand for that commodity, and if the industry average selling price is below the fully loaded industry average cost of production, one of two things happens. Either life changes for the worst because that commodity is unavailable or the price goes up. And if the commodity is essential enough, uh, electricity, uh, the, the means of transporting uh, electricity, food, food inputs, energy, there's really no choice. The price goes up. You can get the when part wrong, uh, but you don't have to worry about the if question. And the truth is that in periods of time where there are artificially low interest rates, the when part becomes less important. In terms of net present value calculations, when I was younger, uh, let's say the early part of the decade of the 80s, when the yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury was 15%, you, in, doing, in doing a net present value calculation, you had to burden the outcome with a 15% annualized bogey, which was very hard to overcome. In a circumstance where the U.S. 10-year Treasury yields 60 basis points, which is to say your, your evaded opportunity is, 50, is 60 basis points, you can afford to be wrong on time if you can psychologically afford to be wrong on time. One thing that's happened to me, ironically, at 67 years of age with less time left on earth, is that I've become much more patient, particularly as a function of low interest rates. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Again, it can be take a lot of commentary about, oh, how do I time the bottom? How do I time the top? And you never, ever... I don't know anyone who can, and I, you're never ever going to be able to do it. So as you say, come up with your investment thesis, pick your horses, sit back, enjoy the ride. That's how we approach it anyway. Um, we're going to have to move to the to your last song of the day. And this is this is a rather fantastic one by Elmore James, which has been, co- been covered a few times by lots of people like Eric Clapton um, Late, you know, later on, but do you want to tell us a little bit about this song? It's an amazing one. Well, the, the covers certainly, if you hadn't heard the original, uh, were attractive pieces of work too, but they pale uh, yeah. to the original. Yeah. Uh, this one I like just because of the way it sounds. The interplay of Elmore James' voice with the slide guitar uh, 
was really incredible. I don't take uh, any social meaning uh, out of the use of rain for tears. Uh, you know, that's a common blues theme and too simple to matter much to me. Uh, so there's no social significance uh, of this to me. Uh, you could be interested in Elmore James' life, growing up a sharecropper, becoming a pre professional musician because at age 12, it was more fun to, to him than picking cotton. That sort of rebellious spirit, if you really want to push meaning. But the truth is, I just love the way this piece sounds. Uh, I just absolutely love the way it sounds. If there was a piece of music that resonated with me purely because I thought it was pretty. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fantastic selection today. I'm just very conscious of the time here and we're running up. This is, I'd hope to get a whole nother segment and we're going to save that for the next time if you'll come back. But to finish off this radio show gimmick of mine, which again, it's just, it's horrific. It's like my segues, they're awful. But I've asked you for two other things. I've asked you for a luxury item that you take away on this desert island of yours. What did you come up with? A telescope. Uh, my suspicion is that the ambient air quality and ambient light on a desert island would be perfect for stargazing. Uh, and given that I would probably have a lot of time stuck on a desert island not doing interviews, uh, stargazing is something that would amuse me. So the luxury item would be a telescope. I was thinking about scuba gear, uh, but perhaps that would be a necessity rather than a luxury desert island. So I threw out scuba gear in favor of a telescope. Did you have one as a child? Did you ever have one? I always wanted one. I never got one. No, I, I live in a place now, sadly, where the sun seldom shines. Uh, and so a telescope in northwestern Washington is of limited utility. Uh, but were I on a desert island, I think it would be, I think there'd be a lot of utility. Wonderful. But I'm going to make you um, select a book that you would take to idle your hours away whilst on the desert island. My favorite book, the book that's had the most meaning to me, uh, and a book that I would probably need to refer to on a desert island, would be Human Action by Ludwig von Mises. It's useful too, that it's a very dense and very turgid book. So rereading it takes a lot of time, which theoretically I would have on a desert island. You're right here. I'm gonna write that down. I'm gonna to have, to, have to get into that, everyone. Um, well, look, Rick, Thank you for putting up with our little foibles and our fun and attempts to uh, get extract uh, investment advice from you in a, in a slightly different way. Um, people really enjoy, you know, your, 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 your knowledge, your sharing, your mantras, your phrases, your sayings, um, you know, they do stick with people. Um, so, you know, do keep up the good work and, and we'd love to have you back on so we can, we can play the next game, which I'd lined up, which we've run out of time for, Rick. Would you do that with us? I look forward to it. I've enjoyed both the process of the interviews and I've enjoyed interacting with the people who have also enjoyed those interviews. Uh, I hope in our limited time remaining that you'll allow me to repeat my offer Absolutely. to you. Absolutely, please do. <clears throat> that is this, I enjoy these discussions and as a way to incent discussions, uh, if the viewers will uh, go to a, a website, sprottusa.com forward slash rankings, you can enter your existing natural resource portfolio uh, in that rankings sheet. Please, no pot stocks, no consumer product stocks, nothing that I don't understand. And I will rank those one to 10, uh, one being best in my opinion, 10 being worst. Uh, and for those 
listeners who request it, uh, I'll send a 50-year Barron's Gold Mining Index chart, which is the best, longest-running index, equities index chart I have, uh, and also uh, a 100-year commodity chart, uh, which talks about the relative value of commodities relative to other financial assets going back 100 years. Once again, that's sproutusa.com forward slash rankings. I'm about 180 responses behind today. So be a little patient, uh, but we will certainly send them back. You're a star, Rick. Thank you so much for your time. We'll speak to you again soon and enjoy the rest of the week. A pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.